Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, and today it's my pleasure to introduce Eva Scheller, a graduate student in the Division of Geological and Planetary Sciences at Caltech, an expert on Martian geology, and, of course, a Star Trek fan. Eva is a huge part of the Mars 2020 mission, so-called because it launched without a hitch last year. Now, the Perseverance rover is just days away from descending upon the Martian surface, where it will explore strange new terrain and seek signs of life. To prepare for the momentous occasion, I thought I'd turn to Eva to tell us more about Mars. Eva's work has been instrumental in preparing for Percy's arrival at its destination on Mars, Jezero Crater. She is a leader of the rover's strategic process plan, which means that she mapped and evaluated the geology of the landing site and its surrounding regions to decide the path that the rover will take to accomplish all of its scientific objectives. She's also a member of the MASTCAM-Z and Sherlock science teams. Those are two of Mars 2020's fantastic new instruments that she'll be describing later. Along our journey today, Eva will also share what it was like growing up with Star Trek in her native Denmark, her new hypothesis for what happened to all or most of the water on Mars, and why Perseverance is going to be zapping lasers with abandon on the Red Planet. Ready? Let's Sky Crane into action. Eva Scheller, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So as you know, um, NASA's Perseverance rover is scheduled to touch down on the Martian surface later this month on February 18th. 2021. Uh, so I wanted to do an episode specifically about Mars and specifically about the Perseverance rover. And, you know, when I started thinking about who is somebody who both likes Star Trek and loves Mars, you were the first person that came to mind. <laughs> so uh, I thought I'd reach out to you. You're a, you're a Martian geologist. Um, and I thought we would just start by getting to know you a little bit better. So Eva, can you tell me a little bit about your academic background and how you got drawn into planetary science? Oh, yeah. Okay. How far do you want me to go back? Just to college? <laughs> as far <laughs> as you think is necessary. Okay. Well, I mean, so the funny thing about geology is that academically throughout your life, you don't really learn that much about it in like middle school or say high school. But I was sort of always very excited about nature like I used to go hiking all the time I had this like huge rock collection and like collected <laughs> books and rocks and like dinosaurs and whatnot and I just like that was like one part of my interest and then at the same time I was always following these like space news or like space movies and like science fiction and like you know followed all these different NASA missions as a child so those are really my two big interests as a child and then in Denmark, when you enter college, you have to choose a major and you actually cannot like you cannot like shift your major. You have to choose like 
the thing you're going to study when once you enter. No and so at first I was like, you know, I'm, I'm like 17. I'm like, I don't really know <laughs> what I'm going to do, but this is like my big interest. So I'm going to go for it. And then if it doesn't work out, I can, you know, maybe drop out and then enter in again in a different major. Be- really because you don't get a full handle on what the subject actually is because it's not something you learn as like physics or chemistry or math in high school. But thankfully it worked out and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And um, the geology major at University of Copenhagen is very much sort of classic geology in that it's, it's mostly like centered around earth, but we have some uh, astrophysics uh, research groups that focus on like other planets. And uh, we actually have a Mars group as well um, that's been affiliated with the cameras on MSL, so the Curiosity rover, and also the camera on um, Perseverance. So I kind of learned a lot about the Mars rovers for like interacting with the people in that research group. And then eventually I applied to study abroad uh, during my undergrad at Caltech, which is when I actually like got to visit JPL and I got to talk with Bethany and John and um, all of these professors who've been affiliated with a lot of the different Mars uh, missions. And and that just opened up a whole world of like, whoa, this is like something you can actually work on. Like I had like studied it and I had an interest on it, but I sort of, I hadn't formed in my mind that I could actually go and work on it. And so that's when I decided that I was going to first try to do research on it. So I did like a summer research program at Caltech where we studied minerals that are important for understanding Martian history. And then I decided to send off my PhD application to do this kind of research and it worked out. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it definitely worked out. Uh, you mentioned Bethany and John, that would be Bethany Elman and John Grotzinger, right? Yeah. And um, those are your PhD so advisors? Was, yeah, they are actually... Yeah, that's kind of funny because, yeah, I mean, I met, I initially met Bethany during my study abroad program, actually, because I was taking her class, and then she eventually became my PhD advisor. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned throughout, you know, your childhood, you were inspired by space news and also by science fiction. So I happen to know that you're also a Star Trek fan. Did you discover Star Trek when you were in Denmark or only when you came to the United States for your um, graduate work? I grew up watching Star Trek because my dad is a huge space nerd, which is also probably why I got a lot of the <laughs> space inspiration. Yeah. Um, so my dad has watched Star Trek like since it came out, like in the sixties or something mm-hmm. um, since he was a little kid and he watched it all his whole life and is a huge Trekkie. And so obviously he wanted to introduce it to me too. Uh, I think I did start watching it sort of, later on because uh, a lot of the like earlier Star Trek anyways is very adult actually like there's a lot of like philosophical reflection so I think I started yeah. watching it maybe in high school or like late middle school and then you know the movies came out and those were great and then uh yeah when I think the the new series came out while I was in grad school so I've been watching that too uh, but yeah really it, it was like something I did together with my dad I don't know anyone else in Denmark who knows that Star Trek exists. Like, I, <laughs> I, I don't know like that anyone like watches this or knows about it. We don't have any space programs that much in Denmark. Um, I mean, obviously we have ESA, but Denmark doesn't contribute to it too much. So it's not like a huge thing that people walk around like thinking about. <laughs> um, and then when I came to America, I realized, oh, 
lot of people grew up watching like Star Trek and like Cosmos and like everything that I was watching that no one else was watching. So yeah. That is so interesting. Because what I wanted to ask you next is, yeah, what is the perception of Star Trek over in Denmark? You're the only Danish Trekkie that I know. And then it sounds like you're also the only <laughs> Danish Trekkie aside from your dad that you know. So um, <laughs> yeah, uh, coming to the United States, meeting other people who had watched this thing that you'd grown up watching must have been just such a, I guess, like you found like a, a new family here of, of Star Trek fans. Is that fair to say? Or what, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe that in America, there's so much diversity. Denmark, for all of its good points, is not hugely diverse. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm also like multiracial and like stuff like that. And so I did find like that there there's so many like communities in America and it was a little bit easier to find the community that you sort of fit into maybe than in Denmark because um, it already is a very small community in a sense. Yeah. Right. And the the fact that Star Trek has always strived to depict a very multiracial crew, I guess that may have perhaps played a, a role in drawing your interest to it early on. Yeah, I think so. Actually, like actually when I think about it growing up, I I was like subscribed to George Takei for like most of my life and stuff like that. <laughs> I love to, you know, just hear his like thoughts about anything really. Mm -hmm. Um, I think actually that that was a part of it. A lot of like media I consumed uh, had Asian representation just because I, and I think I did this subconsciously actually, like I didn't see any other Asians like in Denmark. So a way for me to connect with Asian culture was through like different types of media. And I think George Takei actually did play a big part in that. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> um, yeah, that's very deep. <laughs> I, I didn't even, I'm just like realizing this while I'm saying it. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so our mutual friend Pushkar Koparla once asked me a very difficult question. He asked, if Star Trek had been made in another country, how do you think it would be different? And I had no really good answer to that because I've never lived anywhere outside of the United States. So I'll pass along this challenging question to you to see if you have any thoughts on it. If Star Trek had been made in Denmark, how do you think it might be different? Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, when I think about like Danish movies, I actually think that some of the old, older Star Trek, and I'm really, I've only watched um, Next Generation of the like older stuff. So that's the one that I can like talk on. But I think it actually does relate a little bit more to like what Danish movies are usually like, more so than the newer stuff, actually, because it's very, um, it's actually very serious. Like it's very, philosophical and serious it tries to treat like a societal issue or like a societal it has like a societal comment and that in a sense is actually a lot more danish like mm. than the more sort of action driven plots or more like um uh, specifically the movies were very action driven or it was more like an action based yeah. movie really mm -hmm. um so yeah i think it would be it would be more like the older stuff if it was produced in denmark it probably would be a little less like Star Trek often has like the captain as the superhero or like the coolest yeah, of the bunch. Yeah. I don't know. Like that's the perspective I follow. And in Denmark, we're very 
socially minded or it's more like everything is a team or group effort so it might be a little bit less focused on like the superhuman like capabilities of this like captain and more of a like oh we're all like contributing i mean mm-hmm. it, it kind of is like that in star trek in that each crew sort of have their own important role and without that role they kind of it, it wouldn't work so but maybe they would emphasize that a little bit more um danish media tends to be very serious and very like focused on a societal issue so yeah i think some of the next gen actually falls really well into that that's a super interesting perspective thanks for sharing that all right um so yeah let's now turn to the science and to mars because as we all know star trek is about exploring new worlds and seeking out new life on them and that's exactly uh what mars and the perseverance rover um is all about you know perseverance is built as an astrobiology mission uh it's going to mars looking for biosignatures looking for samples to eventually bring back here to earth and you are a huge mars buff you're an expert in martian geology and you and your phd advisor professor bethany elman published a paper last year on the geological history of the region of Mars where Perseverance is going to land. It's a monstrosity of a paper. Uh, I'm not afraid to admit I didn't read it all. (laughs) Um, And and we can't touch upon it all today. But maybe first of all, we can start with the landing site, um, Jezero Crater. Eva, can you tell us how Jezero was selected as the destination? Did you play a role in that? And also, why is it such a great place to go to? Yeah, sure. Um, during my undergrad, I actually got involved a little bit with like thinking about landing site selections because it actually was a huge undertaking that all the Martian community was actually involved in like internationally um, and got to vote on. And so um, this Mars group at University of Copenhagen um, had this like class where we could learn about the different landing sites that were up for voting. Like we didn't start up with having just like three landing sites we were voting against. We actually had a lot of different ones and it was a huge, like, I don't even know, like maybe decade long process, like narrowing down uh, which one we were gonna go to. And so eventually when I started my PhD, we had it narrowed down to three different ones at that point. So that was Jezero Crater, Northeast Sturtis and Columbia Hills, which is where Spirit had originally gone to. and. There's a lot of work going into both scientists trying to sort of augment the research that had gone into those landing sites to see if we could make some better cases for each of them scientifically. But then eventually, yeah, we had to sort of present our research at this huge conference where like everyone flew in from across the world and then people voted on which one they thought was the better one uh, scientifically. And yeah, it was a really interesting process that I learned a lot for. And so that paper that you're talking about is from work that I did characterizing the regions surrounding the Jezero Crater. And those regions actually include the second landing site, Northeast Sirtis. So our research was originally sort of also to characterize this Northeast Sirtis landing site a little better and try to understand how it fit in geologically with the huge like surrounding regions. And we'll probably touch upon this later. Um, There's a lot of reasons why it's very interesting scientifically. And so that's what the paper is about. And eventually it ended up, because of all this research that had gone into Northeast Sirtis and the fact that it's so close to Jezero Crater, the mission is actually going to be landing in Jezero Crater, but then 
traversing outside the crater and going to these regions that are more like the ones we see in Northeast Sirtis. So we're actually going to do like a combination. But the reason that Jezero was picked as the landing site is because you have this really substantial geological evidence for a lake system. It's actually pretty hard when you're only using satellite imagery. So things that are really um, sort of, what is the word, like very um, limited by resolution uh, issues just because like, you know, you may want to see everything at a microscopic level, but you just can't, right? So it can be really hard to make like a super like scientific case that just cannot be like contested if you want to say like there was a lake here or something like that when the water is clearly not there anymore. But Desert Crater is one of those places where you see the thing we call a delta in geological terminology, which is when you have a river, you know, running water, um, it can be running very fast and it hits a, a standing body of water. And because you have that difference in velocity of the water, you get like a huge amount of deposition that deposits in a very specific morphology that you can you could easily recognize and was very well preserved in Jezero. And incidentally, those types of sedimentary depositional environments are really good at preserving organic matter and like biological material on earth. We, like we know that from terrestrial research. And so both the fact that you have a lake where water could maybe have had a habitable environment and the fact that you have this system that preserves organic matter really well is two of the main reasons that the landing site was like the ultimate winner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. That really makes sense. Thank you for that excellent explanation of why Jezero is such a compelling environment to try to go and explore. You know, as an astrobiologist, but not one who works on Mars per se, and definitely not a geologist, I was sort of watching this whole landing site selection process from afar, but with keen interest. And it seems like it was a very heated debate. And so I was wondering uh, when you were trying to choose between these three landing sites, were you team Jezero or were you actually arguing for the other one in your region, Northeast Sirtis? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I mean, also because I was actually one of the primary the people doing research on the other landing site in Northeast Sirtis at the time, um, we will get to explore it with the mission actually. And it was involved with planning a lot of that. Um, so I think ultimately the fact that we ended up having this sort of mega mission that's going to incorporate both really is like, you know, we saw the arguments for both sides. Um, we chose Jezero in case like the rover doesn't make it outside. We will have at least have explored that lake system. I think that was like the ideal choice. Like, I don't think I could have made any other better choice actually. So that, that's exactly what I voted for actually. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, but I, I know, I mean, it's also, it gets personal because some people have studied these sites for like their whole lives. And obviously there's, there's supposed to be scientific, but maybe also almost like emotional connection to going there. And if it was like a site on earth, you'd just go to both, right? But you can't. So obviously it's, it's a hard choice and it got heated, but that's okay. Yeah, I think <laughs> it, it was done in a very scientific matter, manner in the sense that everyone got to present their scientific goals that they got to achieve. They had the scientific evidence for how we could achieve that and how the rover would fit into that. And the, the process was very scientific really. So 
I think it was done in a good way. That's good. Yeah. And it's also always very nice to remember that scientists are humans too. And, you know, we do have emotions and, you know, that's just part of the equation because we're, we're all living, breathing human beings. So you mentioned in terms of Jezero that this crater, there's like definitive evidence that it used to be a lake system and it's got this material that has been deposited in the lake that is on earth a good place for biological and organic material to be preserved. So I was wondering if you can tell us about the history of Mars water, but I know that that is very, like, you could you know, write a whole textbook about that. So like very briefly, Eva, in your <laughs> point of view, what happened to all of the water on Mars? Sure, yeah. So like the overarching goal of Mars 2020 is searching for like biosignatures, but there's many other like subsequent geological goals as well. And water history is like one of a huge part of them and understanding water history on terrestrial planets in general. And so there's like a, a component of wanting to just understand what like happens to volatiles. So volatiles like water in early planetary evolution. But then that also becomes important for astrobiology because in so many ways that we think about habitability, water is involved in some kind of way. So I guess really what I'm trying to say with that is that water history is linked to habitability and that's why it's important to study it. And so I have been working on a project where we try to understand like more from a global perspective, what happened to the water on Mars, both sort of from a geological perspective, but also from a chemical perspective, because we can measure certain chemical compounds, for example, in the atmosphere of Mars and water plays a huge part in how those um, chemical compounds end up in the atmosphere. And from, from that, we sort of noticed a big, I don't know if paradox is the right word, but that was a word we were playing around with in the paper anyways, mm -hmm. uh, which is that you have a lot of geological evidence for water in the past. For example, this like lake site that Mars 2020 is going to and all these other rivers. Um, and then that sort of evidence is very old. Um, it's the same thing for all the hydrated minerals that we look at. So in my research group, we focus a lot on like minerals that actually are created from water. Like it has water in the mineral structure. And all of those are really old too, which is very weird compared to earth because on earth you form these like water being minerals. So they're, they're the ones that you know as like mud or like, you know, clays, stuff like that. Those are water bearing minerals that you've seen earth but they're like forming all the time, right? They're not like 4 billion years old. And for some reason, they're all 4 billion years old on Mars. So what we kind of thought of in this project is that when you form all these water bearing minerals, really what you're doing is removing water from the active climate system in the sense that, and here by active climate system or like hydrological cycle, I'm talking about water that's in the atmosphere, somehow makes it to the surface, maybe through precipitation, is like surface water, it could be liquid, it could be ice, but there's sort of, there's a cycle in how the water is moving and it's interacting with the atmosphere and the climate. But once you move that into the mineral structure of these water bearing minerals, then you really have removed it from this active climate cycle. And uh, we sort of modeled that through a set of simulations. And it kind of shows that if you move all this water it can explain why you don't have a lot of active water 
and, and that may have been a control on the habitability potential of terrestrial planets. And it differs from the system on Earth because once you remove the uh, water to these hydrated minerals in a crust uh, on Earth, you actually do release the water again because we have crustal cycling mechanism where we have ocean plates that are like subducted and then you have volcanism and uh, you sort of outgas all the volatiles again. Um, and that didn't exist on, on Mars. Let me see if I just can recap for my own um, comprehension. Basically, you're saying that a lot of the water on Mars is still on Mars. It just got incorporated into the minerals in the crust. And then it created these water-bearing minerals that we see all over Mars today. The clays and the, I guess, mud that well, it's is it technically mud anymore? I guess it's it's like a clay mineral. <laughs> so no, clay clay mineral is perfectly accurate. Clay actually. mineral is good. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah, it's a clay mineral, and essentially the water is still there and hasn't been released back into the atmosphere because Mars doesn't have plate tectonics the way that Earth does, and that's the recycling mechanism for putting water back into the atmosphere and then back into liquid form for Earth liquid form but really it's like what is the water that's active in interacting with the atmosphere doesn't have to be liquid like it could be ice Mm. but it needs to be like in what we call exchange somehow and it's just not in exchange if it's in a clay mineral if it's part of like a crystal structure yeah so and that that ended up sort of explaining the timeline that we see from geological evidence and it also ends up explaining the signature of these uh, chemical compounds that we see in the atmosphere today. So yeah, that's our hypothesis. And we think at least with the evidence that we have, we can always obtain more evidence that it does explain the, the evidence that we see today. Very, very cool. Okay, let's get back to the rocks in the region that Perseverance will be exploring once it reaches Mars. Um, so your paper is titled the Composition, Stratigraphy, and Geological History of the Nowakian Basement Surrounding the Isidus Impact Basin. Um, so there's a lot of jargon in here that I just want to explain or have you explain to the audience. So Nowakian Basement and Isidus Impact Basin, I think, are things that most people are not going to be familiar with. So what is the Nowakian Basement and what is the Isidus Impact Basin? Okay, so let's maybe start with the Isidus Impact Basin, actually. So the landing site that Mars Journey is going to uh, is called Jezero Crater. So that in itself is an impact crater, like you had some kind of like piece of an asteroid or an asteroid like smash into Mars and create this like hole in the ground. <laughs> and that's what Jezero Crater. But Jezero Crater in itself is inside another crater. That is a <laughs> giant, giant giant crater that is it's so giant that it's not even a crater anymore we call it a basin which is just some terminology that we have for like different sizes of holes in the ground that were made by an asteroid (laughs) smashing into the planet (laughs) and yeah so that one is actually like i think like 2,000 kilometers in diameter something super wild and jezero is in the rim of that impact basin and that's the one that's called the isidus impact basin so when we're studying jezero not only will we be studying like this Jezero crater, but we will be studying what is underneath it, which is this huge impact basin. Okay. Um, and so that's that's why it's important when we like think about Mars 2020 
that we are also, we're going to be studying a crater on top of a crater, basically. <laughs> um, and so I was studying what is underneath, and that is the Noachian basement, which mm. is the oldest sequence of rocks. So like oftentimes in geology, we want to, to make like sense of all the information that we have from these rocks. We try to divide them into sequences that we think are connected geologically, often like in time, for example. And so that's really what Noachian basement means. It means like the sequence of the oldest rocks that are in this region and that are similar in age as the very old is this giant impact basin. And by very old, it's about like 4 billion years old. So a lot of works like yours are based on data from orbiters. Uh, and so this strikes me as like, you know, when in Star Trek, we're exploring a strange new world, the Enterprise or whatever will be orbiting, and then maybe they'll beam down an away team. And Perseverance is basically that away team, except it's not a human being, it's a robot. Um, so what experiments or what investigations will Perseverance do on the surface that will further our knowledge of the rocks that you've been studying of this Nowakian basement? The first part of the mission is going to happen inside this lake environment uh, where we'll investigate this like lake system that I talked about and what we call the delta. And then the rover is actually going to traverse up the delta and go over the crater rim to this like hole in the ground. Basically, it's going to drive outside the hole. And that's, that's when we basically hit the rocks that I studied because they're all around this Jezero crater. And even some of it might actually be in the Jezero crater because, because you have this like river going through all of these rocks that I studied outside of the crater, they might actually have brought them as what we call sediments. So basically when water interacts with a huge rock, it like breaks it into small pieces and like carries it into the flow of water. And it could eventually be deposited in the Jezero Delta that we'll investigate. That's, that's kind of similar to what actually a beach is, like you had a rock getting broken down by water in some way. And then all the small grains are like still there. So that, that's a way that we could study them. And then eventually we'll study the actual rock once we come out of the crater. And that's like the second part of the mission. And um, yeah, should I talk a little bit about like measurements with the instruments that we're going to do or more like what we're going to look at or? <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe you can uh, start with what will these rocks, the Nowakian basement, teach us about the history of Mars and how will we actually know that using the instruments on board? All right. Okay. Yeah. So I think there's two, maybe three, like primary areas. And we actually spend a lot of time, like we spend a whole year thinking about like, what are the eight science goals that we will achieve with, um, <laughs> with like the instrument suite and like this of rocks, but I'm going to like break it down into like three parts. Okay. So first of all, they're really old. That has implications for life in a way, because if what I talked about before is true, and you actually removed most of the water from the active climate system very early on, that actually means there's only very limited time that there was water in the active climate system that could have implications for the habitability. Yeah, so it's just older and therefore maybe it was more habitable because we have a lot of evidence that older Mars was more habitable than younger Mars. Aside from that, it's also 
really hard actually to study the old crust on Earth because we have plate tectonics. It just doesn't get preserved. So these are like some really rare instances of studying ancient crusts of terrestrial planets that gets insight into what the interior structure of planets are like, like what is the temperature of the interior like very early on and how did the ancient crust get formed very early on. We don't have evidence for that anymore on, uh, on Earth. The second really interesting thing is that these materials are actually some of the most extensive regions of these water-bearing minerals detections. So they're like the biggest like clay-bearing regions basically on Mars, as well as being really ancient. So we actually get an in insight into uh, what were these ancient water systems that created these like water bearing minerals actually like. We, we don't actually know that. Like we, we know that these clay minerals were formed. We have some ideas of, there's like, you know, a multitude of different hypotheses that you can come up with for how these clay minerals formed, but we don't, we don't actually, we have not seen what they look like. <laughs> um, and so that's what we want to do. So it's both, yeah, it's like understanding the composition of this really ancient crust that's through some of the more like chemically oriented instruments like pixel can go in and look at oh what are the different like elemental compositions of these rocks that's going to tell us about how rocks form in the crust and what the mantle looks like very early on for terrestrial planets then some of the more like you know just like you know taking a picture of what the rock actually looks like and studying like the detailed mineralogy so like for example like supercam and uh, sherlock they're really good at like characterizing minerals through spectroscopy, they can try to tell us about what actually are these clay minerals, what do they occur together with, and that's going to inform us of how they formed and like what very, very ancient, like 4 billion years old water environments look like on terrestrial planets, and, you know, especially in these like water-bearing environments that maybe they were habitable and they're really old, so there's, you know, some chance that Mars really was very habitable at the time, but but that's really something we don't know unless you go there. And, and, and that's where a lot of the instruments that are tuned to detecting biosignatures are going to be important. So like fixed launcher like that I already talked about, but even more so the sampling, because when you're looking for biosignatures, a lot of it can really only be done in a chemical laboratory or a biological laboratory. So you need to return the samples. And that's the really new part to searching for biosignatures. That was a lot of great information. <laughs> Let me see if I can recap those three points that you said about why this Noachian basement is interesting. Number one, you said it was because it's a time period that was the most likely time period for Mars to have been habitable. So from an astrobiological point of view, that's exciting. Number two, you said that it was this time period where we don't even have rocks on Earth from that time period because it's so old that all the rocks have been recycled here on Earth, but Mars preserves rocks of that age. So we get to know a little bit about how the first rocks on terrestrial planets were formed. And then number three, I believe it was like, what exactly was the environment that made all of these water-bearing minerals that we see across the surface of Mars? Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. 
You got Perfect. it. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then in terms of how we're going to do this with Perseverance, you mentioned a couple of instruments. And I just want to make sure that people aren't confusing the instrument name with something else because they have some very cute names. Uh, but one of them is Pixel. So when you said Pixel, you didn't mean like a pixel, a, a part of an image, but you meant the instrument pixel. And then the other one you mentioned was yeah. Sherlock. <laughs> Sherlock is, is probably my favorite name of all the names on, on the Perseverance uh, rover. That's going to be a special kind of spectrometer, right? Maybe you can say a little bit more about that and, and why that's useful for biosignature detection. Yeah, yeah. It's an instrument that performs Raman spectroscopy is the, it's a real terminology. So you basically like shoot a laser on a rock and then you measure what comes back. What comes back is linked to the crystal or like the mineral structure or structure of organics from the material that you just shot the laser on. So Shadok has the benefit of being able to actually measure like directly our organics here. And if there are like what kinds of organics as well as being able to measure what are the minerals that are present in this rock. And if you're not like a geologist, just to clarify, a rug is an assemblage of minerals. So that's why I'm talking so much about minerals. That might be a little confusing. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm so glad that the tricorders they have on Star Trek don't work like Sherlock and aren't Raman <laughs> spectrometers. Because can you imagine like Jordy beaming down to a planet and then just starting to laser things to see if there's life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that really is what it is. Like you're just like, Imagine you walk around with like a Lisa pointer and you're like, it's a life here, life, life. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's how, yeah, that's I how mean, it works. In my case, it will be like, oh, is this mineral here? Is this clay mineral here? Is this clay mineral here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Ingenuity helicopter that is also going to accompany Perseverance. Can you say a little bit more about this amazing flying robot that we're sending to Mars? Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone is like super excited about it. So officially the helicopter is a tech demo. So it's about the technology. And so um, there isn't, as far as I know, at least like a science team behind it. Like it's not produced to actually answer the science question. It's just to like demonstrate that we can actually fly on Mars, which is a really hard thing to do because the atmosphere is really thin compared to Earth. So we just want to demonstrate like, can we actually do this? And then um, hopefully can be a part of subsequent missions or maybe even some like human exploration. Um, if we can demonstrate, we can actually do this. But the hope definitely is that it will work. And, you know, these people have been working on it for so long that <laughs> I'm sure it will. And once it works, it will sort of be like a separate entity from Mars 2020. But there is a camera on the helicopter that we're hoping to get imagery back from. And that will really be like a totally new spatial dimension to add to the Martian research because as we already talked about, we have all this like imagery from satellites and we have the imagery from the rovers and like imagery from this this helicopter will actually like kind of go in between in terms of like getting a perspective in the images we have. So that will hugely add to to science as well. But it's mostly about the technology, which in itself is also really cool. Uh -huh. <laughs> Fantastic. 
let's think way down the road now. You know, Star Trek is all about the human adventure in space, although we still have robots like Data, right? Um, but Data is a bit more ad advanced than Perseverance. Um, anyway, as a Mars geologist, I'd love to know your thoughts on the human exploration of Mars. Do you see that as a near-term reality? And would you want that to be a near-term reality? My feeling is that, you know, part of the reason that we're doing Mars 2020, which the huge like added thing that Sue knew that I touched upon is that we're going to sample things. Like we're going to sample rocks, hopefully some like organic material. There will then be a subsequent mission that will go and collect all those samples. And then there will be a subsequent mission that will grab those samples and return them back to Earth. And I think part of the reason that we are doing this free mission thing is really to try to understand, like, can we send humans there and then get them back? If we can first do it with rocks that aren't alive, there's less <laughs> stakes involved. Yeah. But that's, I think, really a huge part of why we're doing it. As a geologist, I think any geologist will tell you that if you're trying to solve a scientific question in the field, it is an advantage to have a human person there as opposed to a robot. It's just, um, there's a lot of like training that goes into, you know, a geologist like doing analysis in the field. And we try to mimic that with robots, but it isn't always the easiest thing to do. So from a scientific perspective, that would be hugely important. Like I think almost anyone from the moon missions will tell you that in a single day, an astronaut achieved more science than like any of the rovers who <laughs> 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 are like many years of exploration. So yeah, I would be super excited for that to happen. But obviously we had to take measures. Like we have at NASA, the Planetary Protection Agency that takes care of reviewing where could there be some sort of philosophical problems in a new, you know, almost like invasive species. Let's say there was actually like a, a biosphere there, we would be an invasive species, right? So mm -hmm. we need to, to take some measures. And NASA are already doing that. Um, right. I would be very excited about it. And I think, I think it's going to happen. And they're actually also on the Martian Energy rover, there is a human exploration experiment. So it's not like an instrument we're going to use in rocks, but it's an actual experiment to see if we can create breathable air from the Martian atmosphere. So that's another step we're taking towards human exploration. Yeah, I love that as a geologist who has also practiced geology on Earth, you bring up the good point that the best instrument to do geology is a human, um, and there's really no replacement for that. So now I want to take you out of your scientist shoes and put you into the role of a Star Trek writer. If Mars were to feature in a future episode of Star Trek, how would you want it used or what would you like to see or what answer to a scientific question that is just burning in your heart right now would Star Trek scientists in the distant future know because they've been to Mars already? Um, can they go back in time? Oh, that would be so cool. Oh my God. That's, a, that's, that's literally the best answer to this question, right? Because we want to know what happened on Mars billions of years ago. That's why we study all these ancient environments. And in Star Trek, we have the power of time travel. Yes. Okay. So exactly. what would your, what would your time travel Mars story be? I mean, I think really what unites all of my different like research projects that I do is I just want to see what terrestrial planets look like 
in the beginning of the solar system. Like I want to see what they were like and how the very, very early crust formed and the very, very early life formed. And we have all these clues that we, you know, like Sherlock are like trying to follow back in time, basically. But if I had the power of time travel, I just want to see what the solar system looked like four billion years ago and what Mars looked like. I mean, Mars really, part of the reason we study really ancient Mars is because we want to understand Earth because um, we, we don't have those ancient rocks anymore. So if we see what Mars, which is very similar to Earth in terms of geology was like, we also understand our own Earth better. So yeah, that's what I would do. I would go back in time. To... <laughs> that's a great answer. I love yeah. it. Going back to your Danish roots now, I'm familiar with this term and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but it's like hygge. Is that right? Um, yeah. This Everybody talks uh, yeah, about it, right? Hygge. Hygge. Yeah. Very okay. close. Ah, okay. One day I'll get it. But it, it, to me, it's been translated to mean like cozy feelings or something like that. Um, I was wondering if you could define hygge for me and then if you could also say whether or not you've felt that either doing science or watching Star Trek or maybe both. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel like it's always sort of been hyped up to more than what it really is. Hygge <laughs> um, is just a word that you say if you are like feeling very cozy. Like imagine you're sitting in front of like the fireplace, the fire's on, you have like your blanket and like, your hot cocoa in a cup. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like the definition of hygge, basically. That feeling that you have in that moment, that mm -hmm. would be hygge. And I think a lot of Danish people strive to that because there's a there's a connotation of how hygge correlates with happiness, basically. So, you know, people want to be happy and that's, you know, it's just a happy feeling that you have. It doesn't require anything large or like something to happen for you to feel like that. It's just like, you know, just happy to be in the moment that you're in. I mean... Anytime that I like sit down with my blanket and my hot cocoa and like watching Star Trek, that's like a huge moment for me. I think one of the sort of slightly positive things about this whole remote situation is that you can actually, you know, sit and really enjoy your science in a way that you just kind of you sitting with your computer with your hot cocoa on your blanket. And that's another like huge moment for me. Yeah. So I have an experience that like almost every day. That's wonderful. And you're right. There can be many more Hugo moments doing science these days as we're uh, basically just doing it on our couches at home. <laughs> All I need, I guess, is a blanket yeah. and hot cocoa now, and then I can have my own science <laughs> Hugo. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, that's just my version, I guess. I think it's really just like the feeling that you have in that moment. So a lot of different things could spur you on to have that feeling. But yeah, that's just what spurs my on. Awesome. like blanket and hot cocoa or tea or coffee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Final question. I want to ask this of all of my guests in 2021, just because of the crazy flipped inside out world that we live in right now. I want to ask what is something that gives you hope? And this can be anything. It can be related to Star Trek or not. It can be related to science or not. Um, but what is one thing, Eva, that gives you hope in this world right now? Can I say the Mars 2020 rover or is that like too much? <laughs> it, it is not too much. Tell me why the Mars 2020 rover gives you hope. I think for me, 
you know, obviously there's a science part, but now I'm just going to talk as like from like a personal perspective. I think, especially like I think America, but also the world in general, there's like a lot of division, a lot of like conflict in the past year specifically. And to me, my 2020 rover is something I do every day where there's like hundreds of scientists from like all different countries from all different fields and they come together every day to make this like one thing work. And it's not to like achieve money or like achieve fame. It's literally just because we want to expand our knowledge as humans. We want to contribute something that the humanity can look back on and like that was like a good thing that we learned a lot from. And yeah, so that that gives me hope whenever I see some like conflicts happening around me. Eva, that is a perfect answer and a perfect place to end the podcast. Thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds and explaining a lot of Mars science to all of us and really, you know, giving us a crash course in in, in Mars. I feel like the coolest thing that you said for me was that where Perseverance is going is a crater within a crater. And thanks to this crash course, I feel like I've put yet another crater into Mars because like, <laughs> I'm, I've landed there myself and I'm, uh, I'm ready for Perseverance to be there. Do you have any special plans for, for watching the landing or anything like that during these pandemic times? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, my partner is actually going to be working on the landing during the landing and he'll be at home. So Technically, I'm also working during the landing. <laughs> um, and then we'll have our like families call in because it's a pretty big moment for like all of them. You know, both my partner's parents and my parents have been following our careers for so long. Then there's like the, the actual instrument teams that I'm involved with. So I'm on the MassCamZ and the Sherlock instrument teams. They have like some watch parties going on too. So yeah, I actually have a lot of things I have to coordinate what I'm going <laughs> to do actually. <laughs> Well, I'll let you get back to all of your coordination and I'll check in after the landing. I hope it's a success and um, I can't wait to see all the great science that you and your teammates do from all that. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Eva Scheller, a PhD candidate at Caltech, Mars 2020 team member and veritable Mars expert. We got a lot of incredible information about Mars and NASA's Perseverance rover today, and if you want to learn more, definitely go follow Eva on Twitter at Eva L. Scheller. That's E-V-A-L-S-C-H-E-L-L-E-R. I'm also on Twitter at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I, which is the best place to hit me up if you have comments about Strange New Worlds. And, of course, if you enjoyed today's discussion, leave us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. I wish Perseverance a safe landing and happy roving on Mars, and I wish all of you the strength to persevere through the remainder of this pandemic. Stay curious, everyone, and I'll see you out there.